You're listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast with your host, Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. 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 As a motivational speaker, Johnny D impacts audiences around the world with his message of living the outstanding life. He's a best-selling author, MC, and two-time Grammy-considered artist. This podcast is a place where Johnny D can introduce you to his outstanding friends and share funny, interesting, and heart-provoking stories. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. Here comes your host, Johnny D. Hey everybody, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Welcome to this week's Outstanding Life podcast. On the phone today, we have Dr. Jeffrey W. Neal. He is calling in from Butler, PA, and I have my good friend Joe Downing. What is going on, gentlemen? Not much. Glad to be with you, Johnny, and hello, Dr. Neal. Hello. Happy Sunday to you guys. Man, what a great day, I tell you what. Um, Hey, listen, you know, uh, Dr. Jeff, we got into talking a little bit about you and who you are as an author, as an educator in the last podcast that we put out, and that was in September. Uh, I really want to dive into your book um, and talk about some of the chapters, and the book is titled What a Long Strange It's Been. Jeff, in, in Chapter 12, your dad had sent you a letter um, you were teaching already, and the, the letter read, Dear Jeff, enclosed... In this small envelope, you will find a check for $1,766. This is the amount you have paid thus far on the debt for the monarch. I am releasing you from the $1,234 you still owe. Perhaps you could put it toward um, a course on your master's level degree. Love, Dad. That really touched my heart. What was that like for you to get that letter in the mail as a young teacher, a guy that just pretty much moved out to Florida, to get a letter from his dad saying, hey, listen, here's the money back that you already paid in. Uh, I was uh, ecstatic that I had a little money because at that time I you know, was making like 17000 a year my first year of teaching. And I was really upset. Um, you know, I, I was like, Hey, Dad, I'm moving. So one of his friends sold me this monarch, but I didn't have three grand. So my dad says, I'll pay for it, but you can you can pay me back every time you get paid. And I was like, geez, you could give me a gift for moving away, being your son, (laughs) you know. But he had a plan all along was to send money back. And I think he got wind that I was looking at taking uh, uh, some graduate courses and to be a guidance counselor. So he said, well, he's probably going to need some money. So this was I think he planned on having me pay it all back. But um, and then he was encouraged me, you know, to go ahead on and take some courses. So, yeah, I, I was happy to have any money back then. So did you go back to school? I, I did. I started uh, picking away at a, a counseling degree and uh I, I moved from being a teacher, which I was for 10 or 12 years, but then, then I uh, moved into being a guidance counselor. So you were teaching, coaching, and going back to school for two solid years to get that degree, correct? That's about how long it took me to get that one, yeah. What was sure. that like? Oh, it was busy, you know. Uh, and at one point during that, believe it or not, I had a part-time job in the evenings, and uh, – it was like a 65-hour work week back then. That's pretty pretty cool, though, that your dad really valued education, obviously. Um, so a couple things that come to mind there, though. Uh, the Mercury Monarch. I bet you wish you still had that bad boy laying around, huh? <laughs> oh, hey, listen. A lot of people back then made fun of me, but absolutely you're right. It was a green 1977 Mercury Monarch, the Gia edition. Oh, so oh, it's a step up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had that little window in the back, yep. which was really fancy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it was, I'm sure, uh, uh, an incredible privilege to be the son of a man that valued education. And, you know, I, I had a similar father, you know, always pushing education, really valued it. And, man, what a what a gift in life that is, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, he was from a whole – he was a depressed – he was born in 1928. So, you know, uh, I was at the tail end of the baby boomers in 65. So, like, we came from different worlds and – 
but he was uh, he he was a remarkable guy. He was a principal himself, you know. Yeah, yeah, I had read that in your book. That's that's uh, so obviously you uh, followed uh, followed in the family tradition there to a certain extent, didn't you? Yeah, Dad would say a certain extent because I, you know, he was, <laughs> you know, pretty sharp. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jeff, you moved, your school actually moved, right? Yeah, at, we, at we this were Lakewood Junior High when I first started, and there was like 800 kids. And then because Palm Beach County was the fastest growing county in, in Florida at that time, a lot of new schools came up. So we drew from a, a whole different area, and uh, we, we doubled in population. We had like 1,600 kids um, Eight eight hundred to sixteen hundred. Wow, that's crazy! And then you were teaching um, DOP. What can can you explain to myself, Joe, and everybody listening? What what is teaching DOP? Well, it was a program called dropout prevention. So you took kids that were at risk, and because we had so many kids, they drew them from uh, all three grades, six, seven, and eight. And they had 75 kids in this program, and they're all at risk, meaning um, they failed. Most of them were, you know, probably came from generational poverty backgrounds, um, single parent households, and you know, a lot of, a lot of, they're challenging kids. Gangs, uh, gothic. They were a mix of, um, you know. What do you want to say? Not not misfits because, uh, but they weren't really fitting into the school system. If you know what I'm saying, absolutely. You know, in chapter 23, um, you were talking to a couple people. Um, you had gotten your degree, and Larry asked you why you wanted to make the move from teaching to counselor. Your answer was you didn't see yourself teaching for the next 20 years, but you enjoyed helping kids with problems. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I liked my don't don't get me wrong on that. Not seeing myself teaching, I liked my years in the classroom. But at that point, I I knew I had at least twenty more years to go, and I was like, okay, I taught English for ten years. I taught dropout prevention. I need a change, um, and I did like that part because, um, you know, I, I'm honest about my, you know, like, hey, I was this great teacher. I was a good teacher. I was an effective teacher and I got along with the kids. I created relationships with them, but there were some master teachers I worked with that really, you know, were artists. And, but my strength was creating relationships with the kids. And if you create a relationship with a kid, that's, you get through that barrier, then you can help them. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Let me, let me run this by, and you just tell me if this had any part in your change from teacher to counselor. And, you know, I was just doing a little bit of research in the way teachers are graded. You know, it's about test scores uh, quite often. That's yeah. like, you know, the big, yeah, the big indicator. There, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm afraid I might. <laughs> I was just looking at, you know, uh, the test scores in uh, the, the, the school that you taught in. And obviously they're, 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 they're a struggle. But then I looked at the demographics of that area. And just a lot of challenges there, I'm sure, to teach these kids. I mean, they're, um, you know, minor, majority are non-white kids. The socioeconomic status is very low, like you were mentioning, lots of gang involvement. And then you're expected to have these test scores that are on par with uh, other much more privileged uh, uh, areas. And I, I just imagine that can get very frustrating. And I, it's a frustration I feel. Yeah, I work in healthcare, and we're we're judged on for one thing, like readmission rates for our patients, but so much of it's out of our control. You know, we just, we, we, we can't help these people to the extent that they can be prevented from getting readmitted. So we're graded poorly on it, but it's just like, man, it just seems so unfair. And I can't help but think that that was part of the deal of being a teacher. It's like, man, I, I, there's so many things that are out of your control in terms of improving their test scores. Uh, absolutely. And that's a, a great point. Um, it's probably one of the most frustrating things that I dealt with and, and you know, my colleagues, because, uh, you know, especially kids like ours, you know, the majority never went on a vacation. Um, you know, not a lot of uh, books in the household. Their parents weren't taking them to the library. Um, you know, I use that term generational poverty, which which basically means your family's been on the poverty level for several generations. Right. And when you have that, and then you're with, uh, 
you know, a middle class, upper middle class kid that's gone on vacations and been sent to camps. And every time they have a problem, a tutor's hired and they're being tested to be gifted. Of course, they're going to do better on a on a test. But that doesn't mean, you know, a lot of all oh, those these kids, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of those kids that didn't score well were super bright kids. Right. You know. Right. A lot of forms of intelligence is that the tests don't measure. And the grade in the schools was, to me, that, that whole grade in the schools hijacked education. It became all about the test scores and not so much about the kid anymore. Right, right. And now, did did you feel that you were able to get away from that a little bit once you became a counselor? Or was the grading for a counselor a similar type of uh, now, you know what they, you know, how do you evaluate, you know, uh, you, you don't get a test score when you're a counselor. You just sort of know, you know, if, if you're um, kids, kids are wanting to come talk to you. And if they're coming to you with problems, like one kid, you know, it's like a word of mouth. Like, oh, I, hey, talk to we had a, a counselor named Frank Mascara mm-hmm. and he was he was a great counselor and, and like. The teachers get to met. They all want to go see Mr. Mascara. I go, that's because he's helping them out. He's not having a party in his office. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, you, well, the kids, you know, there's an example. Oh, I, I, I know his mother just died, but if he doesn't attend this class, we have a test coming up. Yeah. Well, let him go talk to Frank for an hour and miss your, your precious class. You know, I know yeah. your, your grade is depending on it and, and uh, how you're evaluated, but this kid just lost his mom, you yeah, know? Yeah. Hey, Jeff, you um, also, attendance was a huge problem at that school, and you started a program called The Breakfast Club. What was that like, and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, well, a- actually, the gentleman I just mentioned, Frank Mascara, that was uh, his his uh, uh, thought process to, uh, you know, one, one thing I did learn, you know, the way to a man is through his stomach, they say. The way to a kid is, you know, I started giving uh, my dropout prevention kids an opportunity to have pizza and a movie on Friday. And they, you know, would jump through hoops to eat that pizza and watch a movie instead of, you know, having to crack a book open. But, the uh, yeah, truancy is a big problem everywhere, you know, especially right now after the pandemic. A lot of kids aren't going to school anymore. But we got this thing where on Fridays, they could come in, eat, you know, real healthy stuff like Dunkin' Donuts and muffins and, uh, you know, have have a, a little juice. But they were like, you know, it, hey, if you come to school all week, you uh, have a little breakfast. You can miss a little bit of first period and have a little breakfast with your friends. And it, for whatever reason, it worked. They were they were starting to attend school just for that that donut. In chap- Jeff, in Chapter 27, uh, it talks about you working with emotionally handicapped kids and gangbangers. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Um, you know, uh, EEH is what we call the emotionally handicapped kids. There's a different name for them now, different acronyms. I think it's EBD, Emotional Behavior Disorder. But, uh, you know, those kids have a medical reason that they act a certain way. Like their brain chemistry is different, you know, not just hyper, but, you know, some of them can't control their anger. That was real challenging stuff. Um, I don't know if if time to talk about Rodney, but. I was just going to ask you, tell me, well, tell me and everybody else the story about Rodney. Yeah, that, that was a beautiful thing. Uh, Rodney, Rodney was like, uh, Oh God. 300 pounds and tall, you know, he played, he played the uh, rec league football, but he, he, re- he was SEH severely. And, uh, one day he decided to take off all his clothes and run through the front of the school with dismissal. While all the parents are lined up in their cars. And, you know, his teacher was a big guy. He played football at UCF. So you see these two big guys running. And I, I was coming out of the building. I'll never forget it. There's naked Rodney. Um, Holland, <laughs> as I put in the book, Holland, uh. literally. And he was running through the front of the school. We got him dressed. And uh, God bless him. You know, he had a little bit of a 
speech impediment. But while I was calling his mother after we got him dressed again to, you know, let him let her know he was going to be suspended for a couple of days. <clears throat> he goes, I can help you grow your hair back. And, you know, I <laughs> uh, started losing my hair in my 30s. So at that time, I was almost shaving my head like, you know, number one all over. And I, um, I look at him, and he's looking real serious. I, so I hung up the phone. I said, how are you going to help me grow my hair back? He goes, regrow. I go, regrow? He goes, yeah, my stepdad gets it at the beauty salon. You just tap it on your head and, and help you grow your hair back. And I was like, oh, my God. Sorry, Rodney, you're, you're still suspended. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was your first time dealing with, um, you know, gangs as well, right? Yeah, I'm in the when I first was there, I mean they might have been present in the mid 80s, but as something happened in the 90s where you know, our, it also helped that our our school population doubled, but you started to see a uh, different uh different gangs and um yeah, it was a new phenomenon for me. I and and because I was a counselor, my principal kind of um tried to get me to, you know, do interventions and, and so forth with them. And I, I learned a lot about gangs. That's a hard battle, isn't it? Interventions. Cause they, like you had written in your book, that's, that's their family, right? And man, there, there's it just, there really is that pull to be part of something bigger. Yeah. And, and if they don't have that at home, it's a pretty easy transition to join a gang, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually had a, a gang, uh, leader uh, educate me about that. You know, he, he said, uh, I'll never forget. He goes, do you know why they're in the gang? And, and, and uh, I, I go, well, I guess I hear protection. He goes, no, the, you know, two, two most powerful forces in the universe is love and family. And uh, I was like, mm. and it didn't even dawn on me that that was a family situation, you know? Yeah. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't of think them, of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are, you know, from broken homes. Um, so maybe they didn't have a good sense of family. And so now now they have this acceptance and protection. And plus, you know, like you know, got an old country song, ladies love outlaws. You know, the other the girls. I used to say, like, oh, my God, you're going to have to come visit him in prison. Is, is this a guy <laughs> you want to be hooked up with? <laughs> But, um, and speaking of that, Jeff, in Chapter 27, you talk about uh, something that you guys started, and um, it was called Bicycle Academy and Barbecues. Yeah, that was um, James Quillian, James Smith, and and uh, Max Maximo Michelle. They were working with the EH kids, and what they did, it was ingenious. They they got them to work on bicycles, learning how to fix them up. So that people started donating bicycles from the community. The kids would fix them up. And, you know, Q is what we called uh, James Quilly and the teacher. Q would go out and buy all the tools, anything they needed to fix the bikes up. And these kids were learning how to work on bikes. So the first bike they got to keep for themselves. And then they started make you know fixing up these bikes and then donating them to needy kids in the in the school population so we'd pull a kid out of class that's going to be getting a book the teachers would tell us like this kid really needs some help you know and you should have seen these kids that you know tough you know can't can't help themselves sitting down you know emotionally handicapped brains are wired differently than ours you know pushing a bike out to a kid in that that and their look on their face, like, look, I'm helping this kid. You know, it was like a, and and it created the relations. They started liking the teachers more, and um, the the school police officer, uh, De- Debbie was her name, Officer Debbie. She, the the kids started liking, which which is a huge thing to get these kids to like a police person. You know, the popo, and. Uh, well, isn't that amazing, guys? Jeff, just to interrupt just for a second. All I can think about was these two rooms filled with all kinds of tools. I mean, tools that can hurt you and hurt oh, one yeah, another. Yeah. The first time I walked in there, my eyes were darting around. I'm like, okay, Ronnie could pick that up and bash my head in. <laughs> <laughs> and he could get, uh, you know, 
a slap on the wrist. Like, okay, that was a manifestation of your handicap. Don't worry about it, Robbie. <laughs> and there was never a problem, was there? No, but you know what? That was because that relationship was yeah, created. Yeah, yeah. You're going to hear me say that, but that's that's the biggest part of education. If you create relationship with kids, it, it's ninety percent of the battle. I just got goosebumps just thinking about that. I mean, just you, you have these tough kids working on bikes and giving them away and having that satisfaction. I think that's something that we're all looking for. You know, another thing I want you to talk about is um, you guys had a local restaurant called The Farmer Girl. And it was owned, oh, yeah. it was owned by Pete. I just want to tell, you know, t- take a couple minutes and talk about how important that restaurant was to, to your school community and then the community itself. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pete, and I, I, I'm ashamed I don't know his last name, but he was an older Greek guy, and he started this restaurant. It's been there. If you ever go to Lake Worth Beach, it's really good breakfast, you know, farmer girl. And But he would had this thing where he'd invite the homeless in at Thanksgiving, and his diner would be filled, 100 people homeless, and they're eating turkey and stuffing and potatoes. So I just told him one day, I said, that is so cool that you do that. And he knew I worked at the middle school. And he says, hey, if you ever, we the police come and get to go uh, dinners. If you ever want to do that for your families, uh, just let me know. I go, well, how many would you like? He goes, I don't care, 20, 30. So, you know, we aimed high and the guidance department took it on. And so the three guidance counselors would go, we'd pick up these styrofoam and take them to different families. And again, the teachers would be networking with us and saying, yeah, this family's, they're really, you know, the lights are off now. And, uh, you know, that was, but this guy did it all pro bono. I'm sure whoever he was in the restaurant business, they probably said, okay, we're going to cut you a deal on the turkeys or whatever. But he did that for years. I I think he just stopped it because he retired and his family still has the business. Um, I know they still do. I don't know if they do as much as they used to just because he's, you know, he's, Pete's probably in his 80s now. But uh, it, it was an amazing thing and really nice for the kids. Jeff, that's also a place that you went and met an officer that educated you about gang activity in that area. Talk a little bit about that meeting that day. And I have to ask you, after that meeting, were you a little nervous or scared to be involved with what you were getting yourself involved with at school? Yeah, I, you know, um, yeah, for sure. I, I was, you know, leery of, of, you know, when my principal said, I'd like you to work with the gang kids. I'm like, Oh, great. That's, that's good news. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, the, uh, he was the head of the gang task force and the, and the principal Sharon Walker asked me to meet him and he just ran down like this guy knew, everything about gangs. So a lot of the stuff, you know, how they graffiti, they tag walls and bathrooms and stuff. I saw the the graffiti, but didn't really know what it meant. So then he, he was uh, giving me the other pieces of the puzzle puzzle, like, you know, sir, 13 didn't mean anything or bloods and crips and uh, MS 13, you know, whatever, you know, all the different ones. And he ran down where they came from, their history and, and um, you know, the violence. And the part that was scary was they're, they're sort of at war. It's like the NFL of crime, you know? Yeah, man. You didn't see that in uh, Butler, Pennsylvania, did you? No, you know, the closest, you know, maybe you saw a, a biker gang ride down the road on a Sunday or something, you know, with yeah. some leather, I mean, you know, not like this. This was something different. Right. Tattoo 14 year olds with tattoos and uh, just, they look like they're 40 years old when they're 13 or 14. Right. You know, I was looking up, uh, the demographics, of uh, Butler, uh, I guess El Hampton, Hampton township. I think that, that that's where your father was a uh, principal, right? In Hampton. That's I think where that, he, that's where he, he yeah, he yeah. and my mom uh, were there. Right. So I was looking up, you, you came from a town or at least an area that was almost all white. I suspect that's kind of what it looks like. And then you moved to Lake Worth, Florida, where he really diverse population. That must've been pretty enlightening i I suspect not just because of the gangs but you know just all sorts of different cultures down there i'm envisioning yeah i mean i i didn't know the difference between um, a dominican and a puerto rican and a cuban and 
there was, you know, there was Latin people. I knew that from geography at old knock high school, but, you know, once I got in there and, and, and it was interesting for me too, you know, uh, you, you got a, you got a little taste of the, of the world around us and, uh, and, and learning, you know, black culture and Haitian, you know, it's whole, whole different, you know, Jamaican, er, everything, you know? Yeah. Quite hey, a melting pot down there. Hey, exactly. Jeff, in uh, chapter 28, um, you were coaching basketball. I got to ask you, man, how many, with, with a school that big, how many kids would actually try out and how many kids would actually make the team? Well, uh, 300 or 400 could try out, you know, out of three grade levels. And uh, then you had to whittle it down to 15. Wow. And uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, th- that was a hard part, you know, because at that age, everybody thinks, you know, they're going to go to the NBA or the, I used to, every, every time as a counselor, what do you see yourself doing? I'm, oh, I'm going to the NFL. Yeah, I was like, yeah, well, I was going to the NBA and I'm sitting here talking to you. (laughs) Did you coach alone or did you have a a team of coaches? Uh, No, I had had, uh, Barry Barry Gruno was my assistant coach. And uh, the fellow I mentioned earlier, Frank Mascara, he used to pop his head in the gym and help a little bit. Barry was officially (laughs) my uh, assistant coach. Hey, I, you know, with you coaching all those years, did you guys ever win a championship? Well, I, I, I'm not going to tell you that, Johnny. That would be a spoiler <laughs> for anybody that does me a favor and buys this book. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, that's uh, so then, they, hey, if you're not going to tell everybody if you guys won a championship or not, I want you to talk about Ant-Man and Sammy Lee. Oh, God, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's like uh, you guys probably experience this in life. Some of the best things that happened to you weren't really planned. And the, somebody said to me, uh, you need to get Ant-Man on your team. And I'm like, I, I got 300 kids trying out right now. I, I don't need another kid trying out. <laughs> and so just then this kid walks by and he was tall. He was athletic looking. And uh, he goes, "There's a, that's, that's Ant-Man there. I said, okay. So I, I said to him, uh, hey, why don't you come to tryouts? And he was real shy. And then, then hardly talk back then. And, uh, sure enough, he was, uh, uh, you know, a natural, he ended up getting a scholarship to uh, Georgia Southern and he's, uh, he runs the, uh, works for the department or I'm uh, sorry, city of Lake Worth beach runs the department, uh, recreation over at the gym where he grew up. Wow. That's cool. That's a great story. Yeah. And Sammy Lee, uh, th- this kid played professional ball. And, uh, yeah, he, and it, another thing, he just, he came out and he, he was mad at a teacher. He kicked the door open and it hit my shoulder and, uh, you know, I was mad at him. We had a little confrontation in the hall and then I watched him walk away and he had, he had shorts on and he had these calves with these big veins running up his calves. And I started looking, I go, he's tall. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that little adjective there. And I, I said, he's tall. And, uh, all of a sudden, he came to basketball, and uh, I asked him if he could touch the rim. He jumped up and grabbed it with two hands and hung on it, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a seventh or eighth grader, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he was a seventh grader that yeah, year. Man. Yeah, man. <laughs> and then, so you caught, uh, uh, coached basketball with Barry. You taught with him, but you also played some rec ball with Barry and his brother, didn't you? Yeah, he was a really good player, and uh, he, he and his brother had a team, and uh, we were both in our mid-30s back then, and, and uh, yeah, we were called the Beatniks, and we played over in the in the gym in the, in the hood, as they say, um, and uh, yeah, that's where I got to know him, and um, he, he had already created relationships with that community. Uh, I, I had one through coaching, but he he had one cause he was always over there playing basketball. What was Barry like? Oh, geez. You know, um, he, you know, you always hear this, you know, he's one of the nicest guys I ever met, but he really was one of the nice guys I ever met. Uh, his friends that I got to know, he grew up in, in Florida in Jupiter, Florida. And, uh, his friends that went, grew up with him, told me they used to call him the Gandhi at Lake Worth beach. <laughs> wow. That's cool. 
Hey, Jeff, uh, in chapter 29, the title is Lessons from Angel, and I couldn't wait to talk about this chapter. Uh, and Joe, I don't know if you got through the chapter oh, yeah, without w- without crying yeah. or getting a little bit emotional. I want you to talk about, the in the, in the beginning of that chapter, you talk about um, two students fighting, and one of them was named Martin, and you were asked to take him home from school. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes if you have parental permission, especially if they were going to fight, because some even even if you separate them, that doesn't mean they're not going to try to fight. If they're mad, you know, you have to keep kids separated. So I took this kid home. He he was uh, gang affiliated, and his uncle. And this was when I just found out I was supposed to do these interventions, you know. And he's he's the one we talked about earlier that sort of gave me a lesson in in. Uh, what the gangs were about and kind of even gave me direction on how to, how to deal with it. Cause the, the approach I was taking to try to talk the kids out of being in a gang, uh, both the policeman that we talked about at the farmer girl and angel was his name. uh, Both, both advised me like, don't waste your time trying to convince a kid that he should leave his family. Um, There's other things you could do to help him. Well, during, you, you know, you took the kid home, you met his uncle, Angel, uh, uncle Angel, um, asked you to come back for dinner. You did. Um, but that day at dinner, um, you talk about, you know, how much pride they had in having you come over and cooking and stuff like that. But during dinner, they asked you if you wanted some, uh, hot sauce for your burrito. I just oh, want yeah. you, I want you to touch on the, uh, the story about the hot sauce. Yeah, that um, Martin was, you know, of course, at the dinner table, and his mother made this great you know, different Mexican dishes and uh, burritos I was going to town on. And uh, the angel says, you want some hot sauce? He was handing me some chipotle, whatever it was. And he goes, we have some other hot sauce in the fridge. And, and Martin says, it's too hot for gringos. And, you know, that's what, that's what they call we white people, right? So I was like, oh, really? You know, so, you know, as I put in the book, my uh, male ego got involved. Like, oh, I can try your hot sauce. And uh, I don't – I think he said ghost pepper. I don't remember. Whatever it was, it was one of the hottest things that ever went near me. And <laughs> um, I mean, I my eyes were crying, and I was – you know, my throat almost felt like it was shutting – and back then was when I was first starting to lose my hair. So, you know, I had that little crown circle on top of my hair head and whatever that, however that hot sauce reacted in my body. And then they were all looking at me because I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, for me, however, my body is like the sweat will form in a little, little bit on, on where it was bald up there. Right. Well, I didn't realize that I had sweated so much that it was like a puddle was on my head. <laughs> so I went to feel like, you know, just tap my head to see how wet it was up there. And then when I hit it, like water, it went like a sprinkler came out. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, ate, ate some bread and, and some uh, cake. They had Trace Leche's cake, and it sort of cooled the fire. But, yeah, that was hot. And Jeff – yeah. No, you know, so after dinner, uh, you and Angel kind of go in the backyard, uh, have a beer and a cigar. And uh, Angel was an open book. Um, and he, he said, what do you want to know? What questions? Go ahead and talk to me. What was that like for you to open up with Angel um, that evening in the backyard at, at a perfectly, I mean, it was a stranger's house. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was a little, and there was a little party going on next door. And I, I, you know, that was, uh, it was like a little gang neighborhood there. And, uh, well, yeah. Cause you rolled up and there was low riders and everything else next door. Oh yeah. One guy, uh, scared the bejesus out of me. He, you know, did that, uh, hydraulics thing. The car starts bouncing while I was walking by it. I was like, oh. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, it, it was, you know, that, and he was really trying to help me in a, in a, in a sense where I, I think he, he would be able to, uh, you know, give me some kind of, uh, 
you know, idea what it's like to be in a gang. So speaking of that, he he also showed you, right? Because you left his backyard and went next door to that party, correct? Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell all the listeners what happened when you guys walked next door? Okay. Yeah, he, I I said something like, "Is it is this protection thing really that necessary?" And I, he, you know, being a, a teacher that he was that night, he he thought like, "How can I show this gringo what this is like?" So he took me over to the party next door, and there was forty fifty people there, and he was like a general, and he said something. All the females went into the household. And then a lot of other males left. There was a fence between the two houses, a lot of the other males. And I think there was like 13 guys standing there uh, around the fire. And um, basically they, you know, had tattoos, tough looking guys wearing jewelry. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, uh, you know, okay, these guys are going to beat me up and, you know, pummel me here around this fire and they weren't smiling and they were closing in a little bit. I dropped my cigar and I was like, okay, here we go. And all of a sudden they started laughing and were hugging me. And he goes later on, he says, how you felt is how one of the kids will feel if another gang comes up on them in the streets. That was a pretty, very powerful scene, man. That, yeah, that was, uh, and I was, you know, I got it. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a gang behind me if I had to walk these streets. Yeah. I mean, you said in the book, you know, sometimes a teacher needs a teacher and Angel was your teacher that day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeff, um, in chapter uh, 35, um, this is where the, you know, all the fun and games kind of like uh, stop and all these funny stories because it got real for you and the community at, at your school your friend Barry, your coworker, your coach got shot in the classroom. Yeah, I, you know, you, you couldn't have put it better. All the fun and games stopped that day. Uh it was the last day of school. Uh he was killed with five minutes, five minutes left in the school day. And uh that that was a, a tough one. Shot shot by one of his students. And uh it was the last, you know, we all my colleagues said he would be the last teacher we would think that would get shot. You know, he, he was like, kids were clamoring to get in his classroom. Does anybody know to this day what, what and why it happened and why it was Barry, such an incredible teacher, such an incredible father, such an incredible husband. Yeah. My, my theory, which I touched on a little bit in the book was uh, one of the guidance counselors at that time, Sent, sent him home for throwing water balloons, uh, suspended, you know, he got suspended and, it, and, you know, sometimes that was just how you did things, you know, okay. These kids sent home. Well, whatever transpired between the counselor and, and the student, um, it, he wanted to come back and, and I believe, uh, kill the, the guidance counselor that sent him home. And he told somebody, you're going to see me all over the news. But he wanted to go talk to two girls that were in Barry's classroom. And, you know, during that moment, he Barry wouldn't let him in. He said, you're suspended. You're not supposed to be here. So he pulled the gun out, thinking the girls would go out. And this particular gun was like a Saturday night special, uh, had a reputation for, uh, I think it's called a hair trigger, where it can go off easily. Yep. And uh, I I do not believe he meant to kill Barry, but he, you know, he shot him, killed him right there. Did this uh, shooting at your school, did it make national news? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, there was, there was a shooting in Paducah, Kentucky, and then Columbine, which everybody remembers. That was the one that got school shootings on the map. Yep. And uh, we were about a year after that. And uh, I, I remember distinctly that night when I was going to bed, I had the news on and uh, Tom Brokaw said, it's happened again, another school shooting. And uh, it, it was uh, it was on court TV, you know, every every uh, it, it was a, back then. That, that was a big thing. I, you guys might not remember, but uh, 
uh, this kid kid in Miami that was given uh, life for murder. He murdered a girl, but he was like 14. And, you know, the, a lot of people were, uh, you know, trying to say, hey, these kids still could be um, saved and should we just throw them away? And so, you know, it was, there was protests at the trial, which I, I write about in the book. And, uh, you know, a lot of emotions were running real high. You know, the people that lost, um, you know, the family and it, actually the the whole community was rocked. Yeah, that's you a know? tough, tough scene because the kid was, what, 13, 13 years old? 13 or 14, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, I just went and read, read you know, on the Internet what I could about the story and uh, – yeah, so he's he's still still away, um, man. Yeah, it's, it's it's tough, right? I mean, because if you're the the family members of the victim, you know, you probably want some justice. And if you're, oh yeah, there was people that thought he should have gotten life, and there's other yeah. people, you know, thought he should have, you know, been cut some slack. And uh, yeah, it, it, it was a. Uh, the, the whole trial, you know, the, there's like 14 kids had to testify. And uh, Frank Mascara and I were kind of in charge of, of helping them through that. So seeing those kids having to go up on they know they're going to be on national TV. They have to sit in front of their friend that's on trial. It, it was, it was a, a, you know, a heady time. And, oh, and you had to talk during the uh, uh, press conference as well, too. What was that like for you to 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 be right there with all the cameras and everything else and talk about your, one of your best friends being shot. Yeah, I, I, that was, uh, a surreal moment. Um, the, the principal was asked by the district to make the statement and she knew that he and I coached together and she asked if I would do it. And I was like, Oh God. And, uh, yeah. And, but that kind of motivated me to do some of the things I did later because I just, felt like I blew it. I, I got up there and, you know, they asked me a question. I kind of went, you know, I was still in shock, you know, and, and I, I know, remember I was staring and, you know, I felt like, man, I, I, I had this opportunity to, and I, I tried to, you know, I said what a good guy he was, how much he loved Lake Worth Beach, family man, the kids loved him. But, you know, you know how your own worst critic, I remember when I was done talking, I was like, geez, I could have done that better. And that kind of motivated me to want to do some things, uh, you know, uh, to kind of make up for that. So how did you guys deal with all the trauma at school? Um, uh, you know, we, we had uh, counselors there for a while and, um, you know, professional counselors came in for staff and students and anybody that wanted it. But um after they leave, you know, they stay for a week or two, you know, you're kind of on your own. And, and, you know, there's a lot of research now in, uh, you know, and unfortunately there's so many school shootings, but back then it was still kind of a new phenomenon and we were at ground zero and things just happen like kids doing posters and, and writing letters either to Barry or to Barry's family um, all those things seem to help, uh, especially the kids that they call it art therapy and, um, the teachers did different things and, and, um, that, that's one, one part of maybe it'd be interesting to people to read the book. Cause I, I documented this, the stuff that worked for us. Yeah. You guys and also it, had, um, like golf tournaments, you had like team dedications. Yeah. Know. That, that, that was a huge part of a fella from, uh, from Pittsburgh area, uh, Dave Palumbo, he owns a, a restaurant, Dave's last resort. And he, he had just opened a restaurant shortly before the incident. And he, I'd known him cause we're from the same area up here. And he says, Hey, I'm going to do a golf tournament to benefit the family. And it, it was unbelievable. People donated things like they auctioned off Muhammad Ali's boxing shorts and, um, you know, just, it was a and, and that first tournament, uh, the money was donated to Barry's family, and uh, it, it was. But that helped the community. You know, you asked me what helped. Uh, it, it sort of galvanized us when we felt like, okay, somehow we're doing something to remember Barry and also, you know, to help a family. And 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 eventually, a, a scholarship fund came out, which which is part of uh, 
whatever I make on the books, it, uh, portions of it are going to go towards the scholarship fund. There's a scholarship fund in his name for kids that are seniors in Palm Beach County that want to want to go into teaching. Man, that's awesome. That is. Jeff, really just cool. real quick, were you and the teachers after this, you know, situation, were you guys scared to go back to school? Actually, uh, a lot were, uh, I think 20 teachers either retired or moved wow. that, that year, 20, 20 or 25. Out of how many just had a, is that like a pretty uh, significant? Back then, back then we probably had 70 teachers. Oh man, that's huge turnover. 70, okay. yeah. 75, 80 at the most. Wow. Um, yeah, that, there was a, you know, uh, that the the term for that sanctuary trauma because it's a place that should be safe to you all of a sudden doesn't feel safe right and um that that i i didn't um i don't know if it's because i really thought that that was a fluke as far as you know the kid going home and shooting a teacher but you know once once the uh i don't know you won't believe it being that there's so many school shootings, but a school was still uh, the safest place for a kid to be. Yeah, um, I, no, I believe it. I've, I've read the statistics. It's uh, yeah, it's hard to believe because you hear so much about it. Right. 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 But, you know, there's more more kids are shot away from school than they are at school. Right. And Jeff, how can people find your book? Um. Well, there's a few ways. The, the, the publisher was named Dorrance, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-E. And um, you can order it through their library, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can get it through them. Um, you just have to Google Google the title and, and uh, my name, and it'll come up. And uh, that's how they could get it. Yes, a great book. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'd recommend it to all of your listeners, Johnny. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was reading this quote this morning that made me uh, think of your book, Jeff, and it says, uh, always read something that will make you look good if you die in the middle of it. And uh, I'm I'm really glad oh, I wow. didn't. Yeah, I didn't I didn't <laughs> die this past week, but if I had, I would look good because it, it was well, on my nightstand. <laughs> you know what? You you've asked some great questions. I'm glad you didn't die this week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Hey, uh, you know, in chapter 43, um, you know, we started the uh, podcast out talking about your dad, and I want to end the podcast talking about your dad. Uh, in chapter 43, uh, your dad passes. Um, is that kind of how you started your your doctorate? Is because of your dad's passing? Talk yeah, a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my dad was uh, eighty when he passed, and um, his best friend eulogized him. His name was Walt Dercast. Now, my dad, Wayne Neal, and Walt Dercast, they met each other as young men. They were both principals in Westchester, Pennsylvania, around that area outside of Philadelphia. And they realized that my mom worked for Walt and Walt's wife, Virginia, worked for my dad. So they decided like, hey, this is maybe meant to be. And then they found out that both of them were born May 3rd, 1928. And I was like, you know, something about not against anybody that's born May 3rd, but those two were Tars the Bulls and stubborn and, you know, tough guys, you know, both real, real different generations. But when he, you know, the guy you eulogized my dad and at the wake later, Walt says, you know, the last thing your dad said to me is he thought you should go back and get a doctorate. And I was like, Oh, geez, <laughs> no and, pressure uh, there. And you were 50 years old at this point, right? I, I was, yeah, I just t- turned 50 and, um, uh, you know, it kind of pricked my conscience and my, you know, my mom, I wouldn't have done it financially. I couldn't afford it, but my mom and dad, when they retired, they both took each other's retirement and one dies, they get two retirements. And, you know, my mom says, I'll be, I'll be willing to help you with your, uh, your tuition. And I was like, Oh my God, now, you know, I, it's like an offer you really can't refuse. And, um, it you know because uh, you know there's there's a cartel in the United States and people are, are you know the college 
the prices going to college today is, is astronomical. One of the nice things about the Barry Gruno scholarship is, you know, a lot of these kids wouldn't be able to afford college if they don't get help. Right. And, you know, here's a, here's a scholarship that is in memory. I, I would think Barry would be so happy that, you know, something came out of his death where kids are becoming teachers, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but anyways, Johnny, back to what, you know, uh, that's where I started and I had to pick a, uh, a topic, you know, a lot of my people in my doctoral cohort were studying reading programs or this. And so I did a case study on how we recovered as a school community. What, what worked for us recovering? And, um, I, uh, you know, asked the teachers and the school policemen and the guidance counselors and the administrators, some of the people at the district, uh, the school the chief of the school police, di- different things that they thought helped them or helped our school community. And, um, you know, that, that's, that was, that was how I ended up, you know, becoming Dr. Jeff Neal instead of, you know, Mr. Jeff Neal. That's and, incredible. Uh, and the book is called what a long strange it's been. And we've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey W. Neal, my good friend, Joe Downing. And, uh, Guys, I can't thank you enough for uh, – it's never enough time when, when we're talking on these podcasts, but I can't thank you guys enough for spending some time. And, uh, Jeff, just a, any last words? Well, um, I, I want to just thank you uh, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in social media, which is how I'd have to promote my book. I really appreciate you giving me a chance to, to share it with people. And uh, if anybody would go back to the um, last podcast to listen – I, I read something to you. I don't know if you remember at the end. Uh, I just happened to be reading a devotional or something that last time we talked. And it it was talking about, you know, don't forget the light you're given. And, you know, for, by you helping people live an outstanding life, you know, you're 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 doing some things that, you know, not many people get to do. And you have that opportunity. So they can go back and listen to what I read last time if, if they listen to your podcast and a regular basis. I, I, I think it's worth going over again. So, and when they buy your book, they'll know if you won a championship or not. That's right. that A couple of other things. Yeah. Well, the book is incredible. Hey everybody. Thanks for joining us on the outstanding life podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at motivational cowboy. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast. Follow Johnny D on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Motivational Cowboy. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, advertise, or would like to make a donation, please visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And remember to have an outstanding day. Hey, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Are you planning a conference, convention, meeting, assembly, or any live event that needs a guest speaker? I would love to be a part of it. For more information, visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And don't forget to check out my Outstanding Life podcast every Sunday here on Dirt Road Radio, KYDT 103.1 FM and KBFS 1450 AM. Have an outstanding day.